Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. My guest today is Michael Robinson. He's professor of history at Hillier College of the University of Hartford. He's the author of two books, The Coldest Crucible, Arctic Exploration in American Culture, which was the winner of the 2008 Book Award from the Forum for the History of Science in America, and takes up the story of Arctic exploration in the United States during the height of its popularity from 1850 to 1910. He's also authored The Lost White Tribe, Scientists, Explorers, and the Theory that Changed a Continent. But most importantly, for our purposes uh, today, uh, well, at least one of them, he has a great podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs, a weekly podcast about science, history, and exploration, which is also the best title podcast <laughs> on the internet. Michael, welcome to Historically Thinking. Oh, thank you, Al. Thank you for the invitation. So this is kind of a crossover over episode. Um, I'm on your podcast with this. With this, uh, you're on my podcast with this. Um, yeah, some people would say it's like Batman, Superman, or maybe <laughs> Scooby Doo and Schoolhouse Rock. Um, <laughs> that was a really bad episode of Scooby Doo. Mm. But uh, I want to range from uh, your podcast uh, to your books, and then on to some questions about the history of science. So this is. Um, this could even be considered part of our ongoing series on the dis- subdisciplines of history. Yeah. Um, but first, the, the all important question: What does the title of your podcast mean? Time to eat the dogs. Um, well, so my first book, as you mentioned, is about um, the history of American Arctic exploration in the 1800s, early 1900s, and. Uh, definitely after reading a bunch of narratives about that and other expeditions to Antarctica by other countries, you know, there is a point with many of these expeditions where they, um, you know, the dog sledges get them halfway to where they they need to go and they start running out of food. And then, uh, yeah, so it's a kind of a reference to, to this kind of grim moment on an expedition when uh, the team that's bringing you along is man's best friend is suddenly uh, your meal. But there's a there is a kind of you know, I, apart from the Arctic joke, there is a kind of I guess a deeper meaning that I wanted to get to, which is that oftentimes explorers are held up as these figures that are iconic for their bravery and courage and their daring do and their patriotism, and all of that can be true. At the same time, um, explorers had to do things that were often not consistent with those visions and. Um, this was a kind of a way of saying that, I guess. Hmm. I, I remember, I think I reading this for the first time when I was reading a lot about explorers at that, that age where kids tend to read a lot about explorers. Um, did you have that period or is this purely, did you come back to it uh, when you started studying or were you never, yeah, did you never I, play Amundsen? I was not a huge, um, <laughs> I was you know, not pulling a, huge, a sled across um, the fields exploration buff the way that some people were. I mean, I was certainly, I was certainly interested in expeditions. I think I was definitely interested in space, you know, in space exploration. And I, um, I was a huge science fiction fan. So I would say that those were the kind of links to, to, uh, travel and exploration for me. Um, Mm. what was interesting is that I, I think it was only actually after during college and after college where I really wanted to do something else. I wanted to um, not just go straight into the workforce. So I ended up taking a couple of years teaching in Egypt and exploring the Middle East, you know, on my own kind of backpacking and that sort of thing. And I, at the time I just viewed this as a kind of completely natural thing. And I think it was only years later when I had, uh, gone to graduate school in the history of science that I started to realize that this kind of, you know, the quest to find yourself through your, your trek, um, was a really old trope in, uh, Western civilization. And I was just playing it out in my own way with, you know, kind of unconsciously. Um, so that was kind of interesting to me, um, to kind of figure out that, oh, I've, I've drunk the Kool-Aid as well, you know? 
So you started the podcast so after, after the first um, book? After my first book, after the two, book, which came out in 2006, I, I felt uh, very much that, you know, I was super excited that the book uh-huh. came out. It was the, it was the culmination of my, my graduate work. It was based on my PhD, as many first books are. And um, it was reviewed in, you know, a dozen mm-hmm. places or so. And I was super happy about that. They were pretty good reviews overall. But I was a bit disappointed in the fact that, you know, apart from these reviews, I didn't really end up getting in much of a conversation with anybody about it. I mean, occasionally we get cited. I mean, the citations actually pick up, as I think probably um, veteran authors know, the citations take a while to pick up for people to discover your work. But it wasn't what I had expected. And maybe I was just being egotistical to think that, you know, your book comes out and people read it and then they talk to you about it and they write you about it and you have conversations with them about their stuff. And (laughs) so the blog was actually a way of, it was actually me kind of rethinking, you know, what do I, what do I really want to do? You know, I don't, I'm not, I'm in, I'm not in this to make money. I'm, I'm really in this to have conversations with people about exploration. So maybe blogging is the way to do it. So I opened uh, time <laughs> to eat the dogs as a blog in 2008. And it was a, it was a great experiment for me in short form writing. Um, and also a way of trying to reach audiences mm-hmm. outside of the history of science and talk to people who had, you know, interests from anthropology or the general public or cultural studies or other, other areas. Mm -hmm. How did it influence your writing of the lost white tribe, uh, writing a blog? Uh, We talked, I talked about this a little bit with Kevin Levin um, back in the autumn, um, how his writing a very popular blog, civil war memory um, really influenced. um, He was really writing many drafts, uh, sub uh, micro drafts of chapters in a way of what is now published on, on the myth of black Confederates. Um, did you find yourself playing around with ideas sort of in full view of the public uh, for that second book? Yes. And although it wasn't a, a conscious thing, I didn't kind of intend it to, to work out that way. But I, I think like most history um, PhD students, when we're writing chapters for our book, we often consider chapters of 30 or 40 pages each, you know, maybe a four or five chapter book in total. Yeah, um, we're going to spend a lot of time diving deep into some particular subject in one particular chapter. And then I think when I transition to blog blogging, where I'm writing, f- you know, four hundred to a thousand words on a subject, uh, that was such a radically different way of of writing and thinking about writing. Um, and it did help, I think, loosen me up to the idea of other, other ways I could write. And, and when I started, um, writing the lost white tribe, I had envisioned it as an eight chapter book. And as I started to write it, I realized that I, I was actually, it was actually kind of a stamina issue. I I had a hard time imagining chapters as, you know, eight to 10,000 word, um, things that I had to to work through. And Mm -hmm. when I imagined them as 4,000 word objects, uh, I found it a lot kind of easier to find my groove and to see the end point of it. And then also to kind of create hooks between chapters that allowed me to string them together more as a story. So that kind of evolved. I do think it evolved out of the blog writing, but it was, it wasn't quite um, something I had planned. And the actually, I should say, the end of that uh, that book so is actually twenty two you... chapters long, which was about three times as many chapters huh. I, as I had originally intended it. Huh. When did you start the podcast, and why? Is it because people were blogging was going away, or did you? I mean, because everyone talked about the death, the death of blogging yeah. was much talked about. Took a long time, um, but uh, did you start because you realized that so, people were reading the blog? Or because yeah, you just wanted so, to move on to the next um, thing? It wasn't because people weren't reading. It was really more because I started to feel the fatigue of blogging. Um, I I really did benefit mm-hmm. so much mm-hmm. from the experience of writing short form. And I did meet a lot of people through the blog. The blog also became a kind of, uh, you know, digital 
signpost for my work. So even when I wasn't writing, people would kind of find it and get in touch with me, which is great. It became a reservoir of links that I was finding. So it had functions apart from just writing the posts. But I found that um, it was difficult to come up with creative content every week, especially where, you know, I, I teach a, um, three courses each semester at a in a teaching college at the University of Hartford. So, you know, a lot of my work is spent in the classroom or advising students. So it was really difficult to find the creative energy to do that and almost impossible for me to write the blog when I was trying to write other works um, from articles to monographs. And Mm -hmm. so I just started getting tired. I just started getting worn out. And I found that the number of posts that I was writing, you know, three or four years after I started the blog just started to decrease I think simultaneously, as you mentioned, that people were finding even shorter form, you know, uh, digital media to work on, like, Mm. um, you know, Twitter and that sort of thing. And so uh, the reason that I started um, podcasting was that I just started noticing that I was listening to more podcasts and that it had become a, a more important source of information for me than it had originally. And I really liked it as a medium because I could Mm -hmm. um, listen to all kinds of different things while I was doing other things. I have, you know, I have three kids and it's difficult to find time working to, you know, to read or to do some of the other things that we like to do as academics. And I found, wow, I can listen to a podcast while I'm driving, while I'm cooking, while I'm running. And so it was really falling in love with that medium that made me think like, God, I wonder if I could do that. And if, if I could do that, how could I do it in a way that was sustainable with the rest of my life as an academic? So, so it took me about two years to pull the trigger on it, but that was the motivation behind it. Hmm. Um, do you have an edit- editorial philosophy? How do you pick the people that, cause you have a great wonderful mixture of guests on the podcast. Um, is that just the books that are out? Is that just, uh, how do you, how do you pick them? The article that you've read? How does that happen? Um, people yeah. often ask me this question. I hate it um, because they don't realize how actually serendipitous it is. Um, I wish I had more of a plan, <laughs> but I don't. I'm hoping you do. Yeah. So when I, the one thing that I held on to as I was thinking about podcasting, I was, I was actually quite terrified of doing it because I had no experience with audio technology. I didn't know any of the various formats that people use. I'd never really interviewed anybody either. And so there was a lot of the process that completely terrified me. The one thing I felt that I had, which spoke to the idea that maybe I could do this was, I know a lot of people who study exploration. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just been, I've been working in this field for about 20 years mm-hmm. and I know a lot of people and probably I could hit most of them up for an interview. So that was like, okay, I've got a guest list. Um, so that was how I originally kind of thought about it is that, okay, I've got some people I can talk to about interesting things. And as I got started, what I realized, it, you know, I pro- you probably do this too. You begin to keep track of the episodes that you run. And then I started to just create lists of the episodes that I'd run and the various subject matters that we had talked about and people I was interested in talking to and, and creating kind of thematic lists. Hmm. So Mine is also serendipitous in the sense that um, there's there's times I'll be at a at a conference and talking to someone and I think, my God, I really need to have you on the podcast and I'll try to s- schedule them. There are other people who um, I find through reading, you know, academic journals or even just reading the newspaper or natural, na- uh, National Geographic. There are people who get in touch with me also about work that's coming out. But I do try to be a little more systematic now in putting... Uh, the people that I am finding through one source or another into a kind of li- thematic list. So I'm not constantly giving people Antarctica stories <laughs> yeah. uh, that they're, that I'm mixing it up with uh, stories of encounter and stories of, uh, you know, from, just from different fields and different kinds of people. And um, that yeah. sort of thing. I, I have to, I, I probably I'm not, I do try to avoid, there are certain things I try to avoid. I'm probably never going to talk to people about exploration um now because hmm. uh, you do it all, all the Good. time and better um 
Okay, so I have my you monopoly. Have monopoly. That's and good. Um, now uh, Daniel Bellotta has a pretty good Age of Jackson podcast. I probably probably going to cut down on the number of times that I talk to people about the early 19th century, although that happens. Um, so there are things I'm going to uh, avoid, but there are other things that just uh, I've noticed uh, an unreasonable interest on my part in the Roman Republic, uh, which never happened in school. Mm. Um, you know, but I, uh, I, I guess I'm just, I, I mostly do it by surveying, um, university book catalogs and looking for, um, things that interest me. Um, I have to, I have, I have no bigger system than that. Um, I mean, I think it's great. Uh, I, I also feel, um, it, I think it's a very common thing for academics who they go through their, they go through the pipeline of graduate school where they're, they're reading, you know, massive amounts of material every week and then they have to pass their phd exams mm. which you know can sometimes be two three four hundred different texts um and then they get their degree and hopefully they get a job in an archive or as a professor or doing something else and then they have to do their work and suddenly all of that exposure to new literature goes away mm -hmm. and it, i found at least um I don't have graduate students. I found it really difficult to stay current. And one of the things I like, it's, it's a kind of a byproduct of the podcast, not the reason I do it. But, but one thing I do like about it is it, it does keep me current. I'm, I am reading new stuff every week. And um, so I feel like I have a little yeah. bit more of a pulse on what's, what's happening than if I, I weren't podcasting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does um, keep me, keep the radar up to see what's going on. Mm. Um, I don't talk to as many people who write articles as I would thought I would. I thought mm. I was going to talk to people with an article in, you know, the uh, Journal of American History or something like that. Um, but uh, I realized that that's not probably what my listeners necessarily want. Um, I thought that would be a common place to, to do that. And maybe it will be once I find the right people. Mm -hmm. uh, but I want people who are going to be able to talk without too much jargon um, and to, uh, to, to, too small an audience. Uh, this is not a not going to be a huge popular podcast. <laughs> no, for neither of us are probably expecting that. But I need we need some sort of facility. I mean, your guests have a great facility to talk to a wider audience than mm. than just uh, their colleagues. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about your first book, The Coldest Crucible, and that kind of relates. I'm curious to talk about that since that does relate to the title of your podcast. So. Uh, as they say on the book tour, the best question you can be asked is, so what's your book about? <laughs> um, so The Coldest Crucible is a history of American Arctic exploration. And um, I, I had become really fascinated in exploration as a topic in graduate school just because, um, so I, I studied biology as an undergraduate and uh, biology and philosophy. And when I got to um graduate school studying the history of science, I assumed I'd be doing 20th century um, history of biology. And my advisor, Lynn Nyhart at the University of Wisconsin, she studied 19th century uh, biology. And I just fell in love with the 19th century. And science was so different in the way it was conducted. So much of it was field science. And the people who were doing really fantastically interesting work for me were people like Darwin and Humboldt and Huxley, who were going out on expeditions and finding cool stuff. And so I kind of fell in love with exploration through, through reading about those 19th century voyages. And as I considered what I wanted to do as a PhD and ultimately a book project, I just started looking around at areas of exploration that may have not been evaluated or analyzed in the same way as the ones I was reading about with Darwin. And what I found was there was a massive literature on polar exploration you know, um, at the at the state library in Madison, Wisconsin, there was two full stacks of books on polar exploration. Uh, so there was not a dearth of it, but I found that almost no academics were talking about it. And I was kind of just curious as to why that was. And so I, I dug into the subject of polar exploration and found that I think one of the reasons there wasn't a lot of academic work on it was because it was seen as a kind of race to the pole, but fairly frivolous uh, and superficial in certain hmm. ways. Uh, there wasn't a lot of colonization or imperial 
kind of uh, claims being made to the polar regions. Uh, the science didn't seem like it was very exceptional. Uh, these these quests to be first at the North Pole go away once people actually get there. So I think there was a way in which people thought it was a kind of frivolous um, subject. And anyway, that kind of intrigued me. And so I ended up writing a cultural history of, well, if if people were doing all this stuff and writing so many books about it, why did they care about it? Why did they think it was so important? And gradually, as I continued realized that there was a story about the history of science and and the history of manliness, I think, what happens to ideals mm-hmm. of manliness over time in the 19th century that kind of um, became a, a more organic part of that story. So that's what it is. It's really a cultural history of Arctic exploration. It does talk about expeditions, but its primary focus is, well, why do these expeditions matter so much to people back home? And why, why did they matter so much? And I these are the expeditions that people have no I, memory of. I mean, they might have a memory of, they know Perry went to the North pole first. Maybe if they know a lot, they know that. Mm. Um, if they know a awful lot, they know about the cook Perry controversy. Yeah. Um, but I'm thinking of like the Greeley expedition. Yeah. Um, it's the right, the Wrangell Island expedition. Mm-hmm. There was a, there were a series of these expeditions, um, many of which ended very badly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and they did fascinate the 19th century public. Mm-hmm. So, um, what were, what were those expeditions trying to do scientifically? And, um, why do you, why do they fascinate the public? What's your, what was your conclusion? I think actually it was, uh, I think the fascination with exploration was an acquired taste for American audiences. I think that, Hmm. um, the British and the French had figured out in the 18th century that there was a kind of voyaging that could be done under state sponsorship, usually under military sponsorship that didn't have to be about conquering territory and extracting resources, that there were values to exploration above and beyond these things that, you know, sometimes they're called in, in the first age of discovery, you know, we're talking Columbus and the Portuguese and that sort of the God, gold and glory. Um, by the, by the 18th century, you know, people like Condamine and La Perouse and uh, certainly James Cook for the British, Bougainville, they started to do these expeditions not just to find stuff and bring it back home or to claim territory, but to actually show off the power and prestige of their nation. And um, so it became a, I think in modern parlance, we would call it soft power, a way of kind of impressing your your fellow countries in Europe, as well as people uh, that you encounter, that you're a powerful country. And the United States certainly tried to get its hand in that early on in the early 19th century with, for example, the Lewis and Clark expedition and the U.S. exploring expedition, which was a part of a number of uh, naval expeditions in the 1830s and 1840s. But these were very small affairs. And um, they were very difficult to finance because the federal government didn't really know that it had a role to, you know, to finance this sort of stuff. It was really when the British uh, took on the the, pro- the process of trying to find the Northwest Passage in the 18 teens and 1820s that Americans started paying attention to the polar regions, usually just through the press. And then when John Franklin's expedition goes missing in the 1840s. Um, there is a petition to the American president, Zachary Taylor, by John Franklin's wife, Lady Jane Franklin, asking his help by the American government. And long story short, they find a private patron, a whaling patron, Henry Grinnell, who would put up the ships and the money, and the federal government would actually um, make it a naval expedition, and that goes up to find Franklin and 1850. And that, I think, really catalyzes American interest in the Arctic, as well as the idea that soft power, this kind of prestige that comes from exploring things for the sake of science, um, supposedly, is worth doing. Mm -hmm. And so that really becomes the trigger point for a bunch of expeditions that follow in the 1850s, 1860s, up through the turn of the century. Does the, do the expeditions, how do they influence, um, uh, applied science in America. I mean, is is there a, is there a feedback? 
Um, you know, I think one of my uh, history of science professors as undergraduate had studied the way that Lincoln Labs and, and sort of a governmental research in the 50s had directed um, directed fundamental research in different directions. Um, do, do, do the funding of Arctic expeditions direct um, the this is happening at the same time as the research university is being created in the United States. Does it direct um, fundamental research in, at all? No. Um, there, hmm. Which is yeah, interesting. Yeah, there were definitely... <laughs> because it would, it would today. Yeah, there were definitely attempts. Um, but the way that this worked was um, these expeditions, the first one was going up really on a rescue mission to find John Franklin. Uh, mm -hmm. Expeditions that followed in the wake of that had to come up with other reasons to go north. Some of them were actually uh, Franklin rescue expeditions or Franklin relic expeditions, but these were expensive affairs. And so often what explorers would do is they would talk to the scientific community and say, look, we wanna go up there, um, tell us what you want and we'll try to get it for you. And there was a kind mm. of quid pro quo by which explorers would appeal to the scientific community and the scientific community would then go to bat for them with members of Congress, with um, geographical societies to try to drum up the funds and drum up the equipment for these expeditions and also give them at least the patina of something that was scientific and serious. So there was a bit of uh, sleight of hand with a lot of these expeditions. Most of them did not bring back very much in the way of systematic scientific mm -hmm. knowledge. And um, there were there was genuine scientific interest in the Arctic. In fact, um, the Coast Survey, which was probably the most well-funded scientific organization in the United States in the middle decades of the 19th century, um, was extremely interested in the Arctic regions. Alexander Dallas Bache was the head of the Coast Survey. Matthew Morey was the head of the Naval Observatory. He was also very interested in the polar regions because both men thought that the polar regions held the key to a kind of climactic theory of, uh, of the world, of that if we could understand, if we could somehow under, mm -hmm. uh, unlock the, the weather patterns of the Arctic, that we might be able to figure out how ocean currents work around the world. Because there were some questions as to basic, basic science questions like, well, you know, if, if the equatorial regions of the globe receive the most direct solar radiation every single day, then where does all that heat go? Somehow it has to dissipate to other regions of the world um, so that there's a kind of equilibrium. Well, how does that happen? You know, according to what ocean currents or wind currents does this, uh, is there this heat exchange? Um, so there were some really basic science questions. And so they did go to bat for Arctic explorers. They just didn't get back very much. The Greeley expedition, which you mentioned, was a naval uh, expedition that was sent up uh, in the 1880s as part of the first international polar year. And it was an attempt to do a different kind of polar exploration, which was to set up a series of outposts, international outposts around the Arctic, which would all measure Arctic phenomena very systematically over the course of a year. So geomagnetism and uh, or the aurora borealis and tidal measurements, uh, collections of flora and fauna, and that that would be actually collecting science systematically in a way that other expeditions that are just trying to find lost explorers or plant flags in the North Pole wouldn't be able to do. So that was an attempt to do that kind of work. Mm. Ironically, the fame of the first international polar year really went to the Greeley expedition, which became famous because um, most of the men on that expedition died of starvation. And so it became a huge scandal back in the United States as to why all of these men died, which really eclipsed the scientific work of the International Polar Year. Um, so there is a story of mm -hmm. science in the polar regions, or certainly in the Arctic. But I argue that it's really the rhetoric of science that becomes so important as a, as a way of legitimating these expeditions rather than actual collection of specimens, which is a lot less important. Mm -hmm. um, well, so let's move on to talk about the history of science. Um, there's, of course, other ways of thinking. You're talking about a very specific period of explorations. 
some people might see the history of exploration as a part of the history of empire. Um, but you're going with history of science. So let's talk about the history of science. Um, what is it? <laughs> and uh, and it, what's the history of the history of science? When, when does it start? So the history of science develops as a discipline in the early 20th century. And it was really first kind of established by scientists themselves, many of them who were emeritus or who were retiring, who had done work in medicine or in the hard sciences or the biological sciences, and felt that their work was important and wanted to, to leave a, a record of their memories of this, of this work. And so the early practitioners of the history of science were actually scientists themselves. And as a result, those early histories in the history of science as a field tend to be very much focused on the scientific work internally. So they tend to be stories of, mm-hmm. well, this there was you know a question about the germ theory of disease, and it let, gave rise to this question, and this question begat this experiment, and from this experiment we got this conclusion, which led to other questions, and it shows a kind of linear. Um, progress up through uh, the scientific disciplines. And it's not to say that that work wasn't sincere or that it wasn't true in a sense, but later um, people interested, later scholars interested in the history of science, particularly in the 1960s, began to be affected by really the social revolution that was taking place within the humanities. And they began to think about, you know, what are the stories that we're missing by focusing on the internal work of science? So I think if you want to look at the history of science now as a field, really it is a sub-discipline of history, which means that it's much more interested in the sociological and cultural effects and impacts of science than it is with just looking at how experiments give rise to other experiments and how that knowledge is constructed. And yet I note that I don't, I have never met a historian of science and you probably have, but I've never met one who does, didn't have an undergraduate degree (laughs) in science. So true. So true. Um, (laughs) um, and I feel about this the way that an eminent intellectual historian once said to me, he said, uh, Al, uh, the reason uh, intellectual historians uh, are people who couldn't succeed as philosophers, so we just funny. weren't smart enough. Um, and I've, I've always wondered about that, about historians of science as well. But I mean, Thomas Kuhn was, I, he had a PhD in physics, didn't he? Or he I almost did. That. I, 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 or you know, I know like his that. early work was on physics. So I, I, I don't know if that was his. Yeah, I think he was a PhD. But I do know, I think you're right. Um, yeah. That's tr- certainly true in my experience. Um, the one exception to that is that there are programs that you can study the history of science as an undergraduate degree. So you do see people coming into the field as history of science with their undergraduate degree, but yeah. that's pretty close to what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I would find that very difficult. I mean, we talked to the last, just a year ago with Robin Arianrod, who wrote about Thomas Harriet and his, um, his explorations of algebra and mathematics. Yeah. And it got pretty technical and I don't see how I could, you could write about Thomas Harriet or even uh, Nathaniel Bowditch without knowing a lot more about mathematics than the historians going to know about them. You know, I took a history of mathematics class uh, from in the mathematics department or from a mathematician. Um, and yeah, I don't see it. Yeah. I mean, maybe the, uh, the outlier there is, there, uh, there seems to be David a certain Kaiser I mean, it, at it, uh, MIT who is an exceptionally good historian of science. And he also does cutting edge theoretical physics. Um, and it's, it's kind of a, it's magic to watch. Yeah. I don't, I've, I've talked to him about this at conferences and I just kind of shake my head. I don't, I don't quite understand how he does, does it. You can have him on oh, podcast. Oh, he would be a you terrific guest, guest for the, for the podcast, I think. And he's, he's actually able to yeah. talk, uh, you know, very eloquently and, uh, to, to add a var- variety of different levels for different audiences about his work as well as his historical work. Mm-hmm. The um, what, as I recall, history of science uh, 
took a major boost after the Second World War when uh, Conant at Harvard decided that there would be a department there that history, history of science was necessary to explain the new world um, to uh, undergraduates and to inform citizens. Um, is, is that more or less I don't correct? know Do much about right? the early history. I know it in very broad brushstrokes, which was I know that after World War II, especially mm. uh, with the development of the Cold War and the launching of Sputnik, that there was a an imperative to pour money into American universities, uh, particularly in the sciences, to try to keep up with the Soviet Union. And so there was a lot of funding of programs. Mm-hmm. And the history of science, I think, was seen as a kind of humanities that connected to sciences that were important. And I think that for many people, especially at this time when history of science was still in a lot of places being taught as a kind of sequence of early experiments that lead to later experiments, that it was seen as a pedagogical advantage. Wow, you could actually take a humanities course and bring yourself up to speed in a scientific discipline that would get you to where you need to go in order to take physics 101 or biology 101. So I think some people Mm -hmm. were looking to the history of science as Mm -hmm. a kind of pedagogical tool, a handmaiden of sorts for the sciences. Um, I think as, as I had mentioned before in my earlier Mm -hmm. answer, I think by the sixties that really changes and people begin to see history of science as something that's not just going to tell us about how we got to where we are in terms of science, the content of scientific knowledge, but how scientific knowledge itself is also a cultural product and that we have to pay attention to that because if we start thinking that it's truly objective, we're going to run into a lot of trouble. So does history of science to the, the the questions that it tends to the directions it go go do, do they tend to follow the currents within history or the currents within Definitely science? I think the history of science now follows the currents of history. Now that's not to say that there aren't people who are influenced a great deal by um, scientific disciplines and certainly you can find many historians of science, sociologists of science, philosophers of science who are actually integrated with scientists i'm right now i'm i'm talking to you from tasmania i'm I'm doing a fellowship at the university of tasmania and the people who are hosting me are humanities people who are working very closely with antarctic researchers and so there is a lot of really robust conversations between those disciplines so i don't want to make it seem like the united that the History of science is sim- simply an island within the the universe of history. Um, there are many, many history of science programs that that reach out and embrace and connect with and try to integrate with people on the on the other side of the you know the disciplinary divide. Yeah, you had a very exciting um, conversation recently uh, on your podcast with uh, a woman whose name I now forget. And uh, didn't write down uh, who was uh, you were talking about the Hobbit cave in Indonesia, and oh, Paige Madison, yes, yeah. and she was studying how the the how field work was being done on a cultural level, and as well as, but she knew a lot about what was being discovered in that really fascinating uh, treasure chest of a of a site in in, in the Indonesian island. Yeah, Lingbua. Yeah. yeah, she's she's an, another incredible researcher. You know, in addition to David Kaiser, Paige Madison is it would always be a great guest because, she, yeah, she's she's doing two jobs yeah. at once, wearing two hats simultaneously as someone studying the history of a discipline and really wearing the hat of an anthropologist or sociologist in talking to people now and seeing how they interact with each other. It's mm-hmm. it's really that's exciting work. Mm, very exciting. So, um, if someone wanted to read some books about the history of science, um, I mean, other than reading your books, um, that's, a, that's, <laughs> that's a given. Um, but if, if you're going to give a short reading list to the interested listener to historically thinking or t- time to eat the dogs, uh, what would it be? Wow. Sorry. That is hard. That was a, that was a, I, I want to explain to the audience that that was a prepared question. I sent that one to him before. So <laughs> <laughs> he had weeks, weeks to come up with an answer. Uh, okay. Boy. Yeah. Um, so the, the books that, that, um, the books that, uh, that kind of come to mind 
I'm just going to give you some of the books that have been important to me. Yeah. These are not part necessarily of a history of science canon mm-hmm. or a history of science and medicine canon. Mm-hmm. But I think that for me, they were very influential in how I thought about how people think about knowledge. I like this. One of them That's actually a- is written by an anthropologist, um, Lewin. I'm trying to remember his first name. Uh, but it's called Bones of Contention. It's probably 20, uh-huh. 25 years old now. But um, he talks about the discovery of all of these anthropological, by that I mean bio, biologically anthropological discovery. So studying, you know, discovery of bones, uh, paleoanthropology, mm-hmm. um, from Piltdown Man through Lucy and, uh, you know, all of these various discoveries. And the book, because he is a uh, trained in that field and gets does a lot of interview work, he's really able to give you a kind of fine texture view of it. And what I like so much about that book, it's actually Roger Lewin is his name. Um, what I like so much about that book is that he shows really from the inside how much these discoveries are influenced by the expectations of the researchers doing the work. Hmm. And it's not to say that what they're seeing is untrue. And it's not to say that they are lying or exaggerating about what they find but it's just a beautiful rendition of the way that our own expectations color what we see and we can't get away from it it's just it is you know it is part of the lens through which we see the world Mm -hmm. Um, but i think it's just a really convincing book for that another um, book that i love and it's not written by a historian of science or medicine but it's a Midwife's Tale by Lauren Thatcher Ulrich, uh, which has got to be now 30 years old or 35 years old. But I think for anybody who is interested in thinking about trying to rethink what a field looks like, like the history of medicine, I found that book so interesting because she's really looking at a midwife who was pretty much unknown in the literature, um, who's working in the colonial area of Maine. I can't remember the town, but Hollis, I think Hollis, Maine, but uh, but talks about the life of Martha Ballard and how really more than any of the male doctors who actually got published, Martha Ballard was delivering babies and washing people who had passed away and taking care of colic and um, doing all of this work. And through her journals, really recreates, reconstructs a kind of economy, colonial economy of this town. Both, you know, just. Uh, economic work as well as medical work. And um, so I'm just really inspired by that. And I I highly recommend the documentary that was made. um, Oh, yeah. uh, Laura Laura Ulrich is one of the great, um, you know, great technique in teaching is to do a think aloud to describe what you're thinking as you're reading or looking at something with students. And she more or less is doing a it, it's to see a brilliant social historian doing a think aloud as she's looking cross-referencing before the computer, ref, cross-referencing her files to find out where Martha's going at such and such a place at such and such a time. It's just brilliant. It's brilliant to see her at work. Yeah, that's that's cool. Yeah, I, I, I've seen it. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember how cool it was to watch her put up those charts and try to trace mm-hmm, all of the mm-hmm, family yeah. connections and the work connections. It was very, very, and that was before Excel. You know, we had Excel uh, spreadsheets too. Yeah, it was, it's amazing. See, she's going up and down a stepladder getting these, yeah. you know, binder yeah. after binder of materials to correlate them. I um I would say for, you know, there's so many books, but I, I'll, I'll just give a couple that are more recent um, that I've just been taken with for maybe for people who are interested in the kind of history of encounter or history of exploration. Um, There's a book called uh, Do You See Ice by Karen Routledge, who is a historian. She now works for Parks Canada. And she tells the story of um, Cumberland Sound, which is a sound off of Baffin Island in the Canadian Arctic in Nunavut, and how whalers, Yankee whalers, are coming into contact with the Inuit people of the Sound and their interactions over the course of the, the, the years. And what makes the book so interesting is that Routledge is really looking at what, is, um, what are these diff- very different groups of people, how do they interact, but how do they think differently about very basic structural things like what, is, what does home mean and what does time mean? Mm-hmm. And... Um, 
how these these very simple notions are radically different for the Inuit and for the whalers and how this shapes their lives in these really, really profound ways. Um, it's a beautifully written book and it's a really interesting book. And so that would be one of my, you know, plugs for reading a book in the history of, you know, exploration it was a very good, it was a very good conversation too on your podcast. Oh, you, oh, you listened to it. Wow. You've been listening to it. Yeah. Thank you. I would bet that's, that's part of my preparatory work. Yeah. Well, no, I have been listening to your, I like to listen to your podcast. It's so, you know, there's another book, uh, which, um, uh, what is it uh, now? I'm going to, uh, oh God, I'm trying to remember the title of it. It's by, uh, Roland Hunford. And it's about the, um, the race between Amundsen and, mm-hmm. uh, Scott to the South pole. And it's also a book that was written a, a while back, but I remember it was one of the first books I read as I was getting interested in Arctic exploration. And I found it so interesting because it was really one of the first books that really took down Scott for some of his decisions in the Antarctic and really praised Amundsen, who had been seen as a kind of villain in the Anglo-American press Mm -hmm. for 50 years, as someone who was able to reach the South Pole because he paid a lot of attention to things that people, that a lot of English and American explorers usually ignore, like how is your group dynamic going to work? And do you have um, exceptional practice um, with the the tasks that you're going to do in the field? Um, Amundsen was also a big dog eater. He ate all of his dogs. Yeah, he was, that's where I encountered that when I was about 10, was horrified. (laughs) But I mean, that was all very planned. That was not because of, that was, that was all, part of his meticulous logistics. Yeah. Was, I think it's actually that book. It's called no, the, the, the last place on earth. Uh, but that's, and he's very prejudiced. Yeah, I one. mean, that's a great, it's a great Hunford book. is very prejudiced. So, so, you know, you know, no one, everyone should know going in, they're not going to get a kind of balanced portrait of these two people, but it's a great read. And it was an yeah. important read at the time. It was, a, it was important in, I think, changing the way people think about it. Okay. One last book, again, not history sure. of science, but one that for me as a, scholar of exploration i um i took a lot it it taught me a lot and it's actually by maria coffee and it's called where the mountain casts its shadow uh coffee was a a, um, had a relationship with an everest uh an everest climber in the 80s and i can't remember his name he ended up trying to put up a new route on the north face of everest and died and she was bereft and wrote a book about not uh, about these uh, these climbers who climbed you know eight thousand meter peaks but really the book is about what is the impact of these expeditions on the people back home and how you know how people suffer when when these climbers die or they're they're injured or they have frostbite and they have to have their noses and their their fingers amputated and it's a very sensitive and thoughtful look at the impact implications of of this kind of uh extreme environment travel and um and stuff that's often ignored in some of the kind of adventure porn that we see on amazon and you mm-hmm. know barnes and nobles mm-hmm. um finally uh whenever historians in a subdiscipline get together um there tends to be a lot of um discussion of how their subdisciplines on the way out I don't know if you've experienced that. I was at a, a group of Southern historians uh, lately who that is inevitably sort of the, the complaint, you know, when I retire, I'm not sure they'll ever hire another Southern historian. Um, and you hear a variant of that. If I'm the last intellectual historian in my department, they'll, they'll never hire yeah. another one. Um, and the, the death of the history of science has been reported <laughs> for at least about 30 yeah, years. It's true. Um, it's true. <laughs> isn't that yeah. right? I mean, I think you're you're the wor- these people are the, are the worst at it about uh, about playing the the bagpipes for your yeah. own funeral. Um, I guess are you, are you more sanguine, or um, this does seem to be a fact of modern uh, higher education uh, in which humanities departments are always being cut yeah. back. Um, that history of science that every subdiscipline is always at risk. So, or is there something more I to it? I do feel sanguine, but that is really maybe only because I have a position in a history department and 
uh, I there's no pretense to our department doing anything in the history of science except for what I want to bring to it. So I teach a lot of different classes right. and I teach some history of science inflected classes, but my job is really to teach all kinds of different history. Um, so I feel, you know, kind of secure personally, but I, I'll tell you that in graduate school, when I was there in the, in the nineties, um, I was terrified about the job prospects for a historian of science because there were so few positions in the United States and they were already starting to decline. And that decline has continued, as you know, across the humanities. And so if you're in a subdiscipline of mm-hmm. a of a broader discipline that's also in decline, I mean, there's just it's just really grim right now. And so many of the people who I interview are um are young career scholars in the history of science or even graduate students who've you know completed most of their PhD work. And it's just such a grim position to be in. And they are putting their lives together. These are brilliant people, you know, doing really great work yeah. and working really hard. And they are piecing together their lives on one and two year fellowships from year to year to year. And mm-hmm. it's it's agonizing to me. But I, I would say to your broader question as just, you know, does the discipline exist? I think the history, and, and you know, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not in the know, but this is my my take on it. I feel like it is very much nestled now within history as a subdiscipline more than, let's say, within the sciences. Nevertheless, there are so many people whose work kind of attached to the history of science that I'm not af- I'm not afraid that it will cease to exist as an intellectual activity, but I don't know how it will exist as a disciplinary structure in 20 years. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. My guest today has been uh, Michael Robinson. He's professor of history at Hilliard College, author of The Coldest Crucible, Arctic Exploration in American Culture, and The Lost White Tribe, Scientists, Explorers, and the Theory that Changed Continent. And he is the host and impresario of Time to Eat the Dogs. Michael Robinson, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Oh, thank you so much, Al. It's been really, really great to uh, talk with you. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runnett. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 